yeah, tonight's episode is about uh, behind the scenes at the Orthosis Lab. So what we've we've got two two of our friends, colleagues here from. Uh, uh, I'm not going. I never know how to fully pronounce either of your surnames without making a fool of myself. So that's why we called it the Don't Art and Mart uh, show. Um, so we got Arta. <laughs> we got Arta from Footworks in Melbourne, and obviously Martin from Firefly in Sligo in Ireland. And uh, thank you both for coming. Really. Really appreciate it. And um, while we're waiting for people to come online, and uh, before we get stuck into the, the kind of questions that have come in from a sort of clinical perspective, um, quick one about you guys personally. You're both podiatrists, which like, maybe a lot of people don't know. Um, uh, but what stage do you decide you're going from? You're going to be a podiatrist, and then you're going to sort of move into owning a lab do you start making a couple yourself and then uh, you start doing it for a few buddies and suddenly you think there's a business here or is it is it always been the plan and uh, do you do you still see patients do you miss the patient contact if not um let's pick that one to art first and then he can hand over to martin when he's done if that's okay thanks ian and welcome everyone um for myself i actually enjoyed making orthosis at university so one of my uh people that kept on pushing me at it was Carl Endorf in my final year at uni. And I used to actually go and into local community health centre during the weekends and, and public and public holidays or university holidays. And I'd make their orthosis in my final year. And that was at Collingwood Community Health Centre in Melbourne. And I really enjoyed it. I, was, I, I enjoyed that manual labour of my hands. Um, and I wanted to become good at it. I wanted to become good at prescribing orthosis as well as then obviously manufacturing them. And Carl, quite often when we were making ones at uh, university for our patients and he'd like, vacuum press something, he'd go, oh, no, no, you overheated this a little bit. I know you can do better. And he'd just push me that little bit more. So I've got to thank him. And I've told him this on a number of occasions and he's probably blushing right now if he's, um, if he's watching this. Um, and I started making orthosis for myself because I went pretty much straight into private practice. I was a competitive cyclist. I had aspirations of going racing in Europe and never panned out uh, for a number of reasons, but I wanted to make manufacturing orthosis for myself. It allowed me to work after hours and then train during the day and still see, you know, half a day's uh, consulting during the day and, and fit it all in. So it was a way to supplement my income, but also give me a variety of work. And it just grew from there. I had a number of mates, co- colleagues who saw what I was doing, working out of a garage in Melbourne and said, look, can you make mine? And snowballed and probably within about five, six years, we had to make a decision of whether we go commercial of the laboratory or, or concentrate on their clinics. And my then accountant told me that I was an idiot. So I sacked him, got a new accountant and because he didn't see the vision and he didn't share my... <laughs> um, we sold our house. I have a very understanding wife. We sold our house to be able to finance and, and fit out the, the factory, get a lease on the factory, um, get the... Don't have to only get the lease on the factory, but then you've got a have money behind you for the next, you know, six months of lease as a guarantee. So all that cash had to be up front as well as a fit out. So we pretty much sold everything we had, rented a house a kilometre away from the factory so I could walk to work. And that's how we started. And here we are today. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Mark, uh, your story. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was always a, a, a clinician, first and foremost, and uh, ended up working in multidisciplinary practice with uh, orthopedic surgeons, physios. Um, and that led on to sort of the development of podiatric medicine in Northern Ireland in terms of MSK. And from there, I ended up in part-time lecturing in the Northern Ireland School of Coropathy Podiatry. 
And at that time, um, I worked closely with a few different labs using their products in private practice and in the university. And I realized that um, there was an entrepreneurial spirit in me and I kind of felt, well, I'm kind of becoming a key opinion leader in this field and yet other people are benefiting. And it kind of then led to me looking at what was happening in terms of CAD CAM and what was changing in the orthotic industry and particularly then its influence in MSK treatments. And I found myself then consulting to a lab and eventually in a partnership in a lab and then doing less and less uh, clinical work. Um, now I probably see patients probably on a weekly basis, but I've set clinics that are once, once a month only. So we have a chain of clinical practices in Ireland and we have a team of podiatrists that work in those clinics. Um, so that's kind of the story. You have frozen, Ian. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Martin. Yeah, you just froze there for a moment, Ian, but yeah, we're, we're good, going good now. Am I back? Am I back? Yeah, good. back. <laughs> um, dodgy internet again. So, uh, Craig, should we should we work through the questions? That, yeah, let's just uh, start, start on start on the questions that came in. Yeah, perfect. So the first one is. Um, is about labs and their role in, in sort of research and development. So rather than just being these big companies that are looking for accounts and looking for to try and sort of uh, sell as many devices as they can to, to, to clinicians, although that's the goal because they're businesses, your two labs are pretty linked into research. And you, you know, obviously are, you've, you're very close to Latrobe, and I know you, you supply the devices for a lot of their research. And you've got George Murley sort of advising you now. And, and Mark, I know that, you know, we're we're in a, the infancy of of doing a lot more research with with your lab uh, and myself included, but also you've got your medical advisory board. So a question came in, which is essentially: Are all labs doing this? And if not, why not? Uh, I don't know who wants to take it first. Maybe Art, if you want to take. Sorry, and you froze again. But um, as far as are all labs doing is well. I can't really comment what other labs are doing because I have no inside information on that. Um, the reason why we do it is. I am passionate about our profession. I'm passionate about what we do. I'm a podiatrist and, and we employ podiatrists and a number of our staff are podiatrists and we all have shared the same passion to be able to progress and develop new techniques and methodologies to, to be able to pro progress our profession and improve our profession and what we do. And I think research is an integral part of that. And whether that be research involved with La Trobe University through various studies with UniESA, with Chris Bishop, um, he's got a really cool study going on at the moment, which he should have released by the New Zealand conference in June. Um, or whether it's us doing our own R&D on developing new products, cycling, such as the cycling orthosis that we've developed. You know, and that we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars annually, literally. You know? so, but it's, it's something that, that I really enjoy and something that drives me to be able to deliver new things all the time. Part of the reason why you asked also leading to your first question about why I do what I do instead of trading is that, just like Martin said, instead of being a bit of an entrepreneur, sorry, my Polish accent's coming through. I was born in Poland, everyone. Um, and <laughs> after a couple of beers, it disappears, but 7.30 in the morning is a bit early, although Craig's gone to his coke already. Um, <laughs> I think it's that, that passion about about always developing, and that's what drives me. And 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 um, that's what really stirs me up. And, and look, my staff in the lab call me the hurricane because when everything is running smooth, I'll, I'll rush in and start changing things around to find better ways of doing things, of changing things around. And and 
that's just who I am. So involvement in research and development and, and ongoing um, studies and so forth is critical to me and what I do. But what others do, I obviously can't comment that. And one of the things that I think you'll find that the labs that have got podiatry involvements in it actually have podiatrists as owners and a lot of labs don't. It's those ones that will probably work more as professionals and, and be involved in that field. That's just my personal understanding and feeling about it. Do you guys? Yeah. Martin? yeah. Anything to add, Bob? Yeah, I think um, I would agree with Arthur there. I think that, again, being a podiatrist, I have a passion for the profession. Um, part of that is the orthotic industry and part of MSK, you know, is, is a small part of the orthotic industry. So for me, it's about promoting podiatric medicine. Um, and that's always been to the fore. And if you can have a really good advisory medical board around you, you've got better minds than me, then that's really, really smart. Um, the other part of that is that I still think that we're trying as a profession to determine what it is we are doing with these pieces of material that we put into people's shoes. So therefore, when does it work? When does it not? What effects are we having? And therefore, for us to progress as a profession, we've got to produce the evidence. Um, and that, that's a real passion for me too, is, you know, we know we're good at this. We're not too sure what we're doing, when we're doing it, how is it working? We need to have these types of forums to discuss it. We need the research to support it and then say, well, that's appropriate and that isn't. So, you know, doing that gives you something worthwhile to get out of bed in the morning. There you go. Yeah. We have just had an interesting question come in that I'll answer, but then I'll, I'll get Martin and, and Arthur to respond to it. It's from Mike, and he said, are your labs under certification? Well, I can answer that by saying no, because there isn't any any certification available. I know Perfola, which is predominantly North American-based, did try and get some lab certification process going, but I just wonder if Martin and Art could respond to that whole issue of, of lab certification. Martin, you want to go first? <laughs> um, there isn't an umbrella certification, as uh, Greg has pointed out. We tend to be, we were a member of Pofola. Um We tend to be more linked to medical devices agencies. Um, but in terms of orthotic prescription design manufacture, it doesn't really exist. No, and the same from our point of view. And it's, it's something that I've actually been in talks with, with our association and council and people on it. Um, how, do we, how do we do it? Unfortunately, I've even approached um, the health insurance companies here, um, had chats with a number of them. And the, the funny part is the buck gets passed around. Um, the, the health insurance companies say we do and we rebate upon our recommendation by your council, by your body. And, and the association passes back onto the, onto the insurance company. So it just gets passed around. But it's something that I think as a recognition of, of the quality of labs that we both run and are involved with, with the professionals that are involved in the labs um, and the research that we do, I think that's something that's critical and that maybe has to be done in the future. Uh, but currently there is nothing there. But look, I'll be the first one to put my hand up on it. You know, maybe the, the first step there is actually a professional association of orthotic labs that has its code of business practice or, or whatever it may be. And, yeah, and yeah. certification will grow out of that down the track. I mean, there's been various attempts at the years, but 
um, yeah, I think that's probably the next step. So, yeah, I think the challenge that it presents is that you essentially anyone can set up an robotic lab. It's not regulated. Know, yeah, we know countless examples of people who set up garage labs, and um, some of the people that do that have got absolutely no podiatric background or medical background. Um, they see orthotic devices as art supports. Um, they go out into the community and sell them as art supports. Um, and that can be a challenge, and it is a challenge. Mm. Okay, there's a question that's just come in from Rob Isaacs, but I'm going to leave it for the moment because it's actually going to tie in with one of the questions that we were going to touch on anyway that came through beforehand. So I want to get to this one first because this is, this is one of my favourite ones. And uh, on some uh, orthosis prescriptions, we know there's a little box that, that where someone can take an impression of someone's feet and they can send them to you guys or to any lab and they can tick this box which says something on the lines of lab discretion. So it's essentially someone saying, I don't really know what I'm doing. Can the lab do this for me? Um, and, and I know Craig and I have spoken about this before and I've spoken to other colleagues as well. And a lot of us have the belief that uh, we don't know why this exists because surely people shouldn't be doing this if they not don't know what they're doing. Uh, question to you guys, and if you're happy to answer these questions, is firstly, do, do your labs have this box on your form? Uh, and secondly, what do you think the pros and the cons are of it? And, if, and thirdly, if you're, if you're happy to, I'd love to know how many people are actually ticking this box. Uh, Martin, do you want to go first on this one? Yeah, sure. We do have that facility. Um, but let me sort of put it in context. Most people that tick, tick that lab discretion box are going to give you a lot of information. So you tend to get reams and reams of what they consider their biomechanical assessment. And quite often they're asking for not so much simply you make the prescription. You, they want a call and a discussion about the patient. Um, and sometimes it could even be simply about choices of top cover. It could be choices about additions and extensions. Um, periodically, you're going to get some that has got very scant information. And again, you have to phone them or you have to email them. Um, do you see some coming in with no information at all and lab discretion ticked? A few, but not, not that many. Certainly in our lab, you'll get maybe 10% lab discretion, but most of them are going to come with a significant amount of information, which you then make the phone call and discuss the, with, the, with the patient. But there is a few that come through, and then we still make the phone call. You need to tell us more about this patient. Um, so is that, would that be similar to you, Arthur? No, we actually don't. I, I'd lose too much sleep at night about other things than having to worry about whether we're doing the right thing by the patient whose orthosis we are manufacturing. So we put the onus onto the podiatrist and the, the scenario that I'd like to present to some podiatrists when we do get a question about that is that put yourself in the patient's shoes. So you go to a podiatrist paying hundreds of dollars for these devices, the podiatrist takes a cast or a scan, but then leaves the discretion of the prescription about your prescription that's going to make you a better runner, make alleviate your pain and leave it up to somebody in a lab who's never seen you and has never assessed you. I said, how would you feel being that patient? So to us, it's, it's a critical uh, on our and it's a critical note. Um, and look, to, to give you an example, do we get those? Um, we would probably get now once or twice a year that something would come in and said lab discretion and we just simply ring him up or, and just say, listen, fill it out. Because even from, a, from our point of view, from a legal point of view, I cannot make a decision 
about the patient and produce a medical device, even though we just discussed beforehand the industry is not regulated, but at the end of the day, it is a medical device which health insurance companies are paying back money on and a custom-made device. I can't make a decision on that because I've never assessed the patient. So um, we leave it up to the podiatrist um, and we run workshops and we have podiatrists here. We have three podiatrists here full-time now um, who are involved, one on the production line and two in the design process, but also we are available on the phone to be able to describe, describe the um, prescriptions with the um, with the, with the actual prescribing podiatrist. Yeah, I think maybe I see it slightly differently in that I see it as an ability to educate the podiatrist about the manufacturing process and particularly about how you create shape. Um, yeah. Because to me, really, that's what it's all about. And in terms of creating the shape of a product, which then alters its, say, stiffness characteristics, yeah. that shape is determined by the prescription. Um, maybe the you know the choice of the product, the design of the product, but the actual prescription alters the shape. So quite often there's a gap between what the podiatrist knows or thinks we do with the cast, the full impression, a 3D scan, and what actually happens, and yeah. even how prescriptions are applied. So sometimes when we get a lot of information and they say lab discretion, that's our door into, okay, so when you take that, this is what we mean. Do you understand that from this position? So it's a real opportunity for technical support. And it also sort of develops a two-way communication so that the interpretation is correct. I think in our profession, and particularly in different labs, the interpretation of what people want and what we make can vary enormously. Oh, so, definitely. Yeah. Okay. So, but it would be interesting. I think, think um, do a little trial for you, Ian. I'm going to find out how many we get in that say lab discretion that are blank. Okay. Well, I'll let you know. Yeah, Maybe that'd be good. We've. I think it's pleasing that you said you know the number the number you said was ten percent. I think. Yeah, maybe ten percent. I'm guessing, but you know, possibly. Yeah. Well, sorry. In the in the early days, this um, is not fifty. In the early days, we made a decision on the lab discretion box, and it was after we actually received the prescription from a podiatrist whose patient's medical records were attached to a blank script and, sa- and just with a note saying, can you, can you manufacture an orthosis, a pair of orthosis, orthotic devices? <laughs> um, and it was at that point that we just said, that does not exist. So, uh, and I've still actually got that saved. <laughs> I've actually saved that. That was 15 years ago. So, uh, and that's probably the reason that, well, that's the main reason why we don't do it. It's because I can see what you're trying to say, Martin, that it does lead to education, but I was afraid of the, of the far end of the spectrum where we just op- open a, a, a Pandora's box. Yeah. Um, question that's just coming from, um, from Mike. And actually it's one of the questions that came in before. So it seems like a good time to, to say, it. and it, you sort of touched on it already as well, Martin. The different ways to capture the negative impressions of the foot, you know, plaster of Paris, uh, foam, foam boxing, you know, some of the newer uh, sort of laser 3D scanning kind of technologies. Um, what, do you, what, do you, what sort of percentages of each are you getting coming in? And from your perspective as a, as a lab, um, are, are there any you prefer? And if so, why? Um, art? Um. Look, percentage of ours coming in now is, is nudging 75, 80% on scans. So we've been really progressive with that. 
Um, we've also done a lot of education with our podiatrists and, and, and about changing them onto online prescribing um, rather than filling out a paper form, but also the convenience. But education forms a really, really big part of it. We have podiatrists who, how can I say this without being discriminated, are slightly older. <laughs> and, and they were really terrified about scanning. And once they start <laughs> using it and we show them how to do it and how good a result they can get, um, they absolutely love it. Um, so it's, it's a big education. And look, um, I was lucky enough through thanks from, from Craig and Martin, who sends his, sends his hello, visit Paul Paris in, in Vancouver early on this year. And one of the things that he mentioned that they found it really difficult because they've offered all these options, but they haven't been that um, hard on actually trying to actually push that education and, and technology forward. So it's, um, it's something that will be strong on. And I, I envisage that, you know, within the next couple of years, it'll be well over 90%. The technology is changing. There are scanners and there are scanners. Like, you know, up to two years ago, there's only one scanner that we ever recommended because we didn't seem that the others gave a good enough scan to be able to produce an orthotic device from. Um, whereas now with, with um, the iPad-based scanners, with the appropriate apps, I, mind, mind, I, I may say that, you know, there are apps that are absolutely atrocious and we can't even tell whether it's, you're looking at the forefoot or the refoot. Um, but there are some brilliant apps and with due diligence and care taken by the podiatrist when they're taking the scan, you can get some awesome results. And it, it's accurate, it's quick, it's fast, it's clean. It's, um, and, and the lag time from delivering it to us from the clinic, having the scans straight off, which means the turnaround times are quicker. Um, and also looks more professional too, uh, I think, to the patient as well. There's a lot of other functions on the apps available uh, to be able to draw on the apps, to, to educate the patient what they're going to do with the device, those tools, um, I think are a big plus as well. So from our point of view, it's nudging 80% and I envisage over the next two years will be into, well into the 90s. Wow, that's quite high statistics. Um, we're, we're about 30% scanned images coming in. We're about maybe 40% plaster of Paris and about 30% foam impressions. So quite different then to your lab, um, okay. Yeah, and mind you, that, that's probably over the last couple of years. That's really, it's really okay. challenging. Yeah, but we, we've been really- I thought really we were doing really well at 30% scanned images. <laughs> there you go. Arthur, I've got to catch up with you, man. 75, 80%, <laughs> wow. You've got, to, you've got to turn your phone on. <laughs> um, let's, uh, let's, bring in, let's bring in Rob, Rob, uh, Rob Isaac's question, which kind of, ties in with this as well uh do you feel that moving away from physical modeling like modeling like modeling like modeling like digital modeling uh involves any risks in particular the way people sort of visualize and plan the shapes of their device um i certainly you know as, as martin knows i'm i've still i still plaster cast in my hands at least i dabbled with the the scanning myself and I just found that perhaps it's the way my thought processes are I just find that I, I find it so much more easy to visualize my end device with, with a with a 3d sort of plaster cast in front of me uh, do you think that's uh, do you think I'm the exception there or do you think that, that that's fairly normal Mark I think I, sorry I, I think it is pretty normal um, but I, I do it's pretty normal um, but I I think it's, sorry, there was a bit of feedback there. Um, I think it depends which school of podiatric medicine you went to and who were your 
teachers, who were your peers, and then who influenced you subsequent to graduating as to what you favor. So again, when you're in the orthotic industry, you see all sorts of impressions, be they foam, plaster, and the, the, the 3D scans. And the quality varies. Um, but then again, it depends what you mean by quality, um, because it depends what the person is trying to achieve. Um, so it, it just varies, yeah. What do you think, Arthur? Um, I, I agree with, with Ian that it's, it's all about the feel and, and be able to actually assess the cast. I mean, that, that, that is a big plus to it as well. But it's also about understanding and what you can do with that scan. And again, it goes back to the type of scanner that you're using. So if you're using a flatbed scanner that's got a single camera or single laser, the, the, the cast is very, the scan is very shallow. And you can't even see the reflet bisection. So one of the reasons we never use those scanners, the single camera scanners, is that if you look at the actual scan that it produces, it's barely 10 millimetres deep. The average width, maximum width around a heel is around 15 to 20 millimetres high. So we can't even work out the heel, by, the heel width or heel expansion because we're guessing. So initially we used the iCube E500, which gave us a nice deep scan. And with that, you could actually rotate it and envisage it. Ultimately, you couldn't hold it and, and have a look at it, but you could actually see it much better as an actual shape of the foot, what it was. Um, and with the iPad scanner, is that, and again, it gives you a much more deeper, fuller scan, so you can actually rotate it and you can assess it. Ultimately, you know, it is nice to actually hold that cast in your hand and to be able to rotate it and line it up. But once you get used to the process and know what you're looking at, um, it goes back to what I said initially. It's all about training and showing the podiatrist what it's able to do and, and making them confident that's what they're seeing is what we're seeing and what we're getting. Okay. Um, I, I think that's the biggest thing. It's the quality of the scan that the scanner produces that has held the podiatrist back. Um, but some people didn't even appreciate what they were actually sending to the lab. I mean, we still get some pretty average scans and we straight up get onto the podiatrist and say, listen, we've got to catch up or, do, a, do some sort of a session to show you what you're doing because it's um, you could be doing it much better. Yeah, um, I think just talking to your question in there um, with regard to the plaster of Paris, I mean, we still get more plaster of Paris casts than we do foam impressions or 3D scans. And they tend to be a combination of the neutral suspension cast or indeed a corrected version of that cast. So that would still be the most common paradigm that we're seeing in, in casts arriving to the lab. Actually, that, that leads nicely into the, the issue of bad casts and bad scans. And obviously at the lab, if a really bad one comes in, to me, you should send it back. If a not so bad one comes in, you in the manufacturing processes, you, you make compromises if you make too many compromises in the manufacturing process or the scanning casting process and the manufacturing process, you, you might as well have used a prefabricated device in the first place because you, you're going to end up with a reasonably generic shaped um, custom made device. So I was just wondering how you, ha at each of your labs, how you handle the badly done, dan done cast or the badly done scan if they're not bad enough to send back? What, what's, what are the steps and what, what, what sort of compromises get made there? I think that's a really good question. And um, I find it one of the greatest challenges in the lab. And when we first set up Firefly, 
we had this real purist vision that if we had one cast that was poor and one that was good, we were going to contact the podiatrist, we were going to ask them to recast and really focus on that. I think over the years, to be honest, we've diluted that somewhat because podiatrists do not want to recast. And I've had instances which I find really quite challenging, not only in foot orthoses, but particularly Richie Brace casting, where we've contacted the podiatrist and we've had a real standoff where podiatrists have said to me, I've been qualified for 25 years. I dare you tell me my cast isn't good enough. So you get into all sorts of heated debates. Um, we have sent cast back and foam impressions. We've had flat, broken up foam impressions. We've had flat casts delivered. Um, but getting to the sort of nub of your question, um, there are differences between a right and a left cast, and some people are better taking a right-sided cast than they are a left-sided. And there is the ability in terms of either plaster, manual manufacture, or software to adjust it slightly. The question is, how far do you go? Yeah, I mean, that, that was my point. If you, if you go too far, yeah. what was the point of using a custom-made device? So I don't know whether you want to respond to that, Ada. We we have the same thing again. Just like just like Martin, we started off with the thing that you know we're only going to work with the best cast and so forth. And uh, we run workshops for university students. We have Latrobe students coming in um, throughout the year, and we have a table full of poor casts that we've kept over the years. And and they all laugh at it and say, "How can podiatrists do this?" And I said, "Listen, these are the same guys." No, that I've seen them. those casts. Yeah, <laughs> you have. <laughs> so. Um, Look, it's, it, it will happen, but we do same thing. We, we will call the podiatrist straight up. Now the scan's the same. I mean, one of our most popular photos and liked photos on our Facebook page was a set of casts that came in a in a plastic satchel by by uh, by post. So they were flat, you know. So we, we actually we actually put that up, and I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty sure we we made a good effort of blocking the the sender's name out and the patient's name, but we just said, you know, it's um. But the the podiatrist excuse was, but the um the bag was padded. <laughs> um, so as long as, as long as they're willing to recast, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's the thing. And, and look, if we, we actually sent it back, and and um, you're, you're absolutely right, um, both Craig and and Martin, that there are times when the podiatrist is not in a position to recast because the patient lives two hours away, and you do make a judgment call. Um, it's almost like that box where, you know, left discretion, um, but it, it's difficult. You want to do the right thing about a patient. You want to do the right thing about podiatrists. And we've seen a number of cases where we've had a podiatrist send a set of casts that were collapsed. We bring the podiatrist and this has happened a number of times where three months later, we get the same patient seeing a podiatrist that's around the corner and new casts come in because the other ones haven't fitted because there was a problem with heel pinching or they were too wide. And we've had that happen. And I've got one of those casters actually in that room. <laughs> yeah. um, now, what about the issue? So, so, a pair, like, say a pair of casts come in, one, the left foot, say, has got a very high arch and the right foot's got, say, a very low arch profile. Yeah. And one, you've got to be confident that those casts are accurate. Yeah. Uh, you can't necessarily be confident. You can't necessarily be confident that they're accurate. Um, I assume a lot of podiatrists, a lot of patients don't like orthotics that look too different on the left and right side. So you might want to compromise on both or 
maybe one's wrong and one's right. So what, I was just wondering, how, you, how do you handle that situation? Um, I think very much it depends with the biomech form that comes with it and the prescription. Does it reflect what you're looking at? Um, that's the first thing, you know, and, and quite often in terms of the prescriptions, if you see two very different casts and yet the prescription's the same for both feet, then that's a phone call. Um, you have to contact the practitioner and say, look, could there be an error in casting here? Um, because that does happen, you know, um, particularly somebody who can, who can take a really good cast on the right side, not so good on the left, and then the prescription's the same, but there's no difference in the biomech. So that's a phone call or an email. Um, sometimes we, we talk a lot about cast dressing, which is the soft tissue expansion. And I'll talk specifically in the early days um, because we did get where I wanted everything to match anatomy perfectly. So we were going for a minimum or skin dressing. And I got some podiatrists returning their products because they did not look the same in terms of width or in length. And yet when we matched it to the casts, it was pretty much perfect. So it depends again on the school of education. Where were they educated? What are they expecting to see? And then how you educate them as to what they prescribe and what they're going to get back. Um, but there is a more and more push, I think, to the generic length, width, etc. Definitely. Yeah. yeah from, from our point of view, it, it's about the same thing where we look at the prescription, we will contact the podiatrist if the feet are different whether it's a cast or a scan left and right. Um, and the feet are particularly different in shapes because of a motor accident or, or development problem. Um, we actually asked the podiatrist to note that on the prescription so we know that it's not a full cast or a scan. And, and we can take it as such from there. But definitely in cases where the cast left and right are different and nothing is noted and like Martin said, the prescription is the same, we jump straight on the phone uh, to contact them. Um, I would say with ours, um, our, probably around 35 to 40% of our left and right prescriptions are different. And that might only be by one or two degrees. Might be a totally different way. One is made as a black inverted device and the other one is a standard, standard um, you know, modified root type orthotic. Um, so but it, there, there is a far, it's a great variance of it. Um, in terms of length of devices, I would say probably 30%, maybe 35% of our devices are left and right are different in length. And that could be, you know, anywhere from three to, you know, whatever, whatever it is due to, again, whether it's a development problem or so forth. But that's the variance. Um, Width-wise, um, again, more so, again, with, with no Shaco feet and things like that. But as a standard device, Width-wise, most of them would be similar. It again goes to what Martin said, it's that need for them to look similar, but it's also because they go into shoes that are the same. So if you've got one device slightly wider than the other, it's going to fit dif sit differently in a shoe. It's going to sit differently and feel differently and function differently because the way it sits in a shoe, not because the way the device was manufactured. So the patient will come to you and, and uh, uh, to the prescriber uh, on, the, uh, on issue and the patient will say, well, left feels different to the right and it's nothing to do with prescription slightly because it's slightly wider and sits different in the shoe. So even though they might be wider, but we make sure in our manufacturing process that the tapering on the, on the sides is the same. So it drops into the shoe the same and there's no difference from that perspective. Yeah, I, would, 
uh, that's the length that can vary, but the width we tend to go with a functional grind, a dress grind, and a sport grind. Yeah. But again, that can vary if we receive templates, particularly for cycling shoes, professional soccer players, you know, professional GAA players. You yeah. have to make the template, and it's quite interesting to see the 3D data, this, the shape of the foot, and then the template that's provided. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I call it time. I call it from our and trying to squeeze an egg into a shot glass. <laughs> Actually, the, the, interesting comment, <laughs> the interesting comment you made there oh. is the thirty to thirty to forty percent, perhaps different between left, you know, left and right is different. Yeah. And earlier on, we were, we were talking about industry standards and and some ethical issues. I am aware of one operation or, or one setup advocating. Uh, so with, with the with the. CAD software, you can spend the time designing, say, the left orthotic, and you can just flip it to the right foot. Now, in a perfect world, you make a lot of adjustments. I have heard advocated you only need to scan one foot and send one foot to that particular lab, and they will design it and flip it to the other foot as a time-saving, cost-saving. I'm sure there are ethical issues. Now, if Arthur's saying that 30 to 40% of the time there's a, a difference, even though it might be small between the left and the right. And I, I, I roll my eyes when I see that. And if that's ever an example where we need industry standards and industry ethics, um, that would have to be it. Well, well I mean, it, it's interesting there that you say 30 to maybe 40%. I would have said ours is much higher than that. I would nearly go as far as 80% is different left to right. Um, now, maybe is that a difference in terms of the UK to the Australian podiatry? I, I don't know. But uh, we get a lot of different left to right prescriptions. Yeah. Would you find that, Ian? I mean, if um, let's. Uh, yeah, I think I think so. I mean, I've never really given it massive amounts of thought, if I'm honest. Uh, and obviously, I, I don't see lots. I don't see anywhere near as many. I, I see my own prescriptions. The uh, much wider spectrum. So I don't know where my prescriptions sit in the in that spectrum. Um, uh, but yeah, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to think about that and have a scan back through some of my my prescriptions and have a look because um, I, I don't know off the top of my head. Um, question, and it seems like a good time to ask because we've talked about um, we've talked about sort of lab discretion box and people, you know, perhaps not, not having the confidence in, in making the decision themselves, and we've talked a bit about some of the, the horrible casts and indeed scans that you get in and all, all of these kind of things. And, and these are sort of, you know, rightly or wrongly, you would perceive them as a lack of quality from the podiatrist's end, which obviously inf- make your life infinitely more difficult. Is there an argument for um, having some kind of postgraduate course that you'd have to complete before you could prescribe devices? So, you, you know, you leave university, you know, with your BSc, you're a podiatrist, but you can't just start prescribing these things just the same way you can't just start taking a scalpel to people and doing podiatric surgery, for example. Um, although that's a bit of an extreme example. Do you think there should be a, a, a course that you have to pass before you can prescribe devices? Uh, Mark, Mark, what do you think? Um, I think it sounds really plausible and good, but right now, I think as a profession, we don't really know what we should be doing. So to create the course and say, this is how you prescribe the perfect orthotic for this MSK condition, we're not there yet. Um, discussions <laughs> like this need to, be, need to take place at a really high intellectual level where we discuss 
what is it we are doing? And that's where the research comes in to support the changes that occur in the, the kinetics or the kinematics. Um, and that's where the value lies. And, and that's why I'm so pleased to see the podiatric profession having these discussions and really searching, searching for these types of answers. Um, you know, we know that the whole route model is now, uh, you know, in history. So, you know, we're still talking about casts in uh, a neutral suspension position. Well, what is the implication for this going forward, you know? So, yes, it would be wonderful to have a course that everybody, after they qualify, would go do this, and then we all know what we're doing. But it's not like opticians or optics where you can use your little lenses and say, there's the perfect fit for you. Um, there's so, so, it's so complex. It's not, it's not a course I'd want to teach. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I would love it to be like that. And I think so would Arthur and so would both of you. Um, but we're not quite there yet. You, your thoughts, Arthur? Uh, yeah, the same, same thing from my perspective. I mean, continue education um, as, a, as a health professional and, and a podiatric course. I, I think if you speak to a lot of the podiatric courses, which we do, and the universities and, and they they sort of say, well, no, we have our we have our programs and the podiatrists are taught and the students are taught in a manner that they should know what to do and how to prescribe when they graduate. It's part of their their education. Um, but you know what they try and achieve and what's actually happening in the real world are two different things. Um, and unfortunately, people don't get to see what Matt and I get to see on the inside of the lab and some of the scripts that come in and the questions that get asked. Um, so I don't think, look, we, we offer, we, we run our workshops and I'm sure Martin, you do as well. And you've got your, uh, your, your mm-hmm. conferences that you run and, and we run workshops. But one of the things that we strongly insist on from our point of view is that every podiatrist that wants to start prescribing with us, um, gives us two hours of their time and whether it attends our workshop that we run in house on a regular basis or do we, um, we go and visit them. Um, so it's something that we're really strong on because, you can use any lab, but, you know, everybody, Martin does things differently the way they've developed the procedures and, the, and their modifications to us over the last 25 years. And mind you, we've just worked out earlier this year that it's 25 years in business this year. So there might be a party somewhere down the track. Keep, keep this, watch this space. Um, 25 years, well, they said the first 50% of businesses in Australia fail within the first two. So we've survived 25. So we've done okay. Um, the, but that continued education is paramount, but not, all, not only from a point of view of educating the students, but also from the lab's point of view as they're doing research um, and, and developing new modifications and new techniques to be able to let the podiatrist know what is happening. Yeah, I think, you know, we talk about their uh, course for postgraduate. I mean, Again, at a high intellectual level, we need to be talking about the undergrad education yeah. that, uh, you know, is right across the UK, Australia, South Africa, America, Canada. You know, what are we teaching each other? What are we doing with patients and how do we get an evidence base that, that supports prescription writing and uh, medical device use and so on? Um, so I think it's really evolving. Um, I don't want it to be a sort of a negative discussion because I think it's actually really positive. And I know we talked about lab discretion boxes and we talked about poor casts and poor this and that, but there's actually a lot of really good prescriptions come in and a lot of good oh, casts as well. You know? yeah. 
definitely. Yeah. So, you know, I just want to make sure we focus on that it's not all negative, guys, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> just keeping you on your toes in there now, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, yeah, apologies if it's come off, come across that way, but people like people like to hear the controversial stuff, don't they? No one wants to hear when things are going well. Um, what has just come in? Let's have a little look if there's anything that's come in. Yeah, um, uh, talking, talking about undergrad, just mentioning Emma Cowley, who, as you know, um, uh, teaches at Plymouth here in the UK, says some schools of podiatry do have such a test. I think she was referring to our question about the, the orthosis prescription test uh, in the second year of study with a practical exam too. And that's pretty encouraging to hear because I certainly, I know it was a few years ago I trained, but I certainly don't recall any such test uh, for me. Is that commonplace in Australia as well, Craig? Art, yeah, well, no, aware I, of? I, I, I sort of on one hand, I, you know, I want to defend the university courses. Obviously, I worked at one. I, I thought we did a, a pretty good job of teaching the phototheses there. I think I thought we did a pretty good job of teaching all the other courses we taught. The problem is what happens when they leave university. Um, and I... I sometimes roll my eyes when I think, oh, my God, this person was one of my students. Um, you know, I'm not sure whether Arta would agree, but, the, you know, I, I, I was reasonably comfortable and confident in, in the course we had at La Trobe. Um, it's just that we don't have any control of what they do once they leave. And I think the, the, the problem, and I, I don't know whether Emma would agree either, but I think that's where the problem is. It's not necessarily what happens at that level. It's what happens when, when, they, when they leave, what they remember. You only need 50% to pass an exam. Um, and that's just the nature of the beast. But from, from our perspective, um, one of the challenging things that we find is as, as we develop new methodologies and new techniques in manufacture and modifications um, that we can apply, podiatrists tend to sort of, uh, some of the prescribing podiatrists tend to overdo it and they think that they can actually modify it to come up further. And the analogy I like to use is there's a number of people that like to put sunroofs on convertibles. Um, it's a great idea, but just functionally, it doesn't work too well. Okay, so we have modifications that we've come up with, and they try and marry it up with something else that just does not make sense. Um, so, it, it, that, but that goes back to education, uh, definitely. You know, um, we are trying to work something out with, with some of the, with a number of the universities we work with, and we work with five podiatry um, courses. Where, and with the help of uh, George Murley working for us, trying to design some sort of a program where certain certain um, knowledge will be required by third year graduates and then by third years and then by, by fourth year by some of the end of their fourth year um, to know that they understand have a certain understanding of what what is needed and how to ask for the things that they want that, that's one that's one of our aims uh, in the short term future mm -hmm. just want to touch on a question that's just come in as well um, it goes back to the left and right differences uh you know we spent quite a bit of time on but it's from elaine and she sort of said left and right feet differ in how they function in gait uh, orthotic prescription for each should be different and um you know for me i think the question then becomes you know it really comes back to the thing that you said mark which is do we really do we really know what what our prescriptions are doing do we really know what they mean and, and a lot of the time i, I don't i don't believe that a couple of degrees difference on the prescription or whether they're the same is going to necessarily be a deal breaker. We know we've got this envelope of success rather than this, this so one prescription. Uh, I don't know what your guys. So well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, ultimately we, we know if we put five degrees varus on there and they, and the patient reports improvement, there's a pretty reasonable chance that whether we'd have put four or six, we'd 
may well have got the same outcome as well. So I think a lot of the time, thinking back to your question to me, is I probably think I'll, I'll probably write symmetrical prescriptions left and right myself quite a lot. But that doesn't mean I feel that their feet are functioning completely identically. It just means I don't think it's necessarily that big a deal. Uh, I don't know what your, your thoughts are, both from a, from a lab end on that one. Yeah, um, I agree. Sorry, go ahead, Arthur. No, um, I was going to say the same thing that, you know, going back to the point of the difference in prescriptions, although I said that the percentage that, you know, um, well, that was different, but we do have podiatrists that 95% of the prescriptions would be different left and right. So let's just put that into context. Um, and a large number of those. So those that do it, do it a lot. And those that don't, don't do it, do it more symmetrical. Um, but... You're absolutely, absolutely right. Does, does one degree either way make a difference? Uh, go, going back now that we've got CAD CAM and, and, and it's all computer design, that one degree can be seen as one degree in the design process and through the machining process. But let's be honest, you know, one degree, if you're doing plaster work, how do you differentiate? You try and do the same modification a week later and it will be three, four degrees out because of the amount of plaster work you've put on because it's all up to the skill of the technician. But then once you've actually machined it out or vacuum pressed it, then it goes to grinding and that washes that out even more so. And that's just the honest truth. You know, it's, it's made by humans. It's not totally made by machines. Um, and that's part of the art and part of the design and part of the success of the lab to, to be able to have technicians and quality controls to be able to control that and give a consistent product to the podiatrist. So when they ask for a four-degree product in June, they ask for a four-degree product in, in, in December the device comes back the same rather than, you know, from week to week being different because different technicians have got different skill sets. I think that's far more important than a podiatrist breaking brains whether they should go for four or five degrees. I I agree. I think it makes sense that as a business, you want to promise your customers, your your, your podiatrists, that they're going to get that level of repeatability. But we all know clinically it really probably isn't that big a deal because even if it, even if you could get that level of repeatability, they put them in different shoes and they walk on different surfaces. So a couple of degrees here or there, uh, to my mind at least, really, really isn't a deal breaker. Yeah, yeah, I, mean, I would, yeah I would agree with that because we see a huge range of shapes come into the lab. We see a huge range of prescriptions yet the majority of podiatrists are reporting positive outcomes. So again, when you maybe try to create a degree of rotation, and again, going back to thinking about kinematics, well, really, are we altering the kinematics at all? And is it actually an alteration of the kinetics? And then how do we measure that? And so on. So it, 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 it's complex, but I don't think I would agree with you. Zones of optimal stress, as Simon Spooner once said, and uh, getting someone in that zone uh, is maybe what's important. Yeah, I think we're How just... How do you have time, Craig? Yeah, well, I think we're just... just one more question. It's a good one to finish on, probably. It's almost an hour. That we've had a lot, a lot of questions come in that we're not going to get to. I've sort of been also inundated with quite a few private messages with questions. So hopefully when we're well, finished... Email them to us and we could answer them. <laughs> but hopefully when we're can finished... We, uh, can we just ask one more quick one? Yeah, let's have one, one more question and we'll wind up, yeah. It, it, 
just it just it just seems like a really good one to end on, and that is the future. You know, because we all kind of want to know what the, what the future holds, and obviously uh, keep this this one as brief uh, as possible, so Craig doesn't get too upset. But where, where is where is where are things heading? We know about laser scanning, we know about three D printing, but what what interests me is the current relationship between. Patient sees podiatrist, podiatrist sends some kind of impression to lab, lab manufacturer sends back. Do you guys envisage that, that, that flow, that, that pathway changing at any point um, soon? Art? Um, definitely. Look, we've gone in the last 25 years from working in a garage doing plaster work to CNC machine to, and the progress was from CNC machine, uh, a positive cast and then vacuum pressing to machining the actual orthotic device itself. Mm-hmm to now, obviously, the future is, is 3D printing. Um, and what 3D printing will give us um, is that, that next level of accuracy, again, because whatever the, our podiatrist designers will design the prescription on CAD, that will, be, that will come out like that. There'll be no post-processing grinding. So those differences will remain there. So we'll just give that extra percent, um, one or two percent of, of improvement in quality. Um, you know, there's technology available and it's coming very soon um, where it will be uh, functionally and, 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 you know, as a business model, sustainable to go 3D print. Um, things are changing rapidly at a daily rate. So I think that's the big one. Um, you know, we've got companies now, um, I've got emails and, and things that I've seen from Brooks, Nike, Adidas and, and everybody else where looking at 3D printing their own shoes. So... You know, imagine getting your orthotic design imprinted into the insole of a shoe. Um, I think that's what we're talking elite athletes here because the costs will be quite prohibitive initially. But I, I remember speaking to somebody who was involved with a shoe, sports shoe manufacturer and their game was that what they were hoping to achieve is an athlete has their shoes designed with the orthotic inbuilt in, into within it. An Olympic athlete, for example, and he flies off from Melbourne to London for athletic world championships and he, he puts his uh, scan or his program into a reader at Melbourne Airport and by the time he lands in London at Heathrow, there's a booth there where he picks up his custom-made running shoes, running spikes, um, and it's actually ready-made for him while it's actually in the air. So it will reduce his uh, travel and baggage and, and so forth, but the shoes will be there available for him. So um, I think that's where it's heading. And, and nice. you know, we've seen, I've seen evidence that it's already pretty much here, but again, we're talking about production and costs and, and available to whoever. Yeah, I mean, I'll just add very briefly. I mean, I think that there's always going to be a need for the podiatric medical professional, um, and particularly in multidisciplinary teams. And when I see the development of a Department of Podiatric Medicine in the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons in Glasgow, I mean, I see podiatric medicine evolving to be alongside medicine and uh, and dentistry. And I mean, this is a real progression for our profession. I mean, long term, I think what you'll find is that when there is an MSK pathology and the diagnosis is, is, is made, it'll be determined, well, do we need to use a medical device or not? And if so, I think what will happen is it will be a scanning device on your handheld phone. You'll scan the foot. Within that, there'll be an app that allows the podiatrist to design the product in real time. Um, and then that will link either to traditional manufacture or it will link to 3D printing. Um, so I think that's potentially where it's going to go. But, yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry, um, 
I've just seen one of the messages come from David Ives here, who's got a really cool logo, a really cool avatar. I love the Liverpool thing. Um, what's the patient from food printing their own orthotics? Well, nothing. They can go and vacuum press and, and manufacture their own orthotics now. It's the prescription. So at the end of the day, the technology will still produce a shape. It's that shape that we're sticking under a patient's foot. It's that prescription. And then, the la- A, the podiatrist's ability to write the prescription, diagnose, and then the, the lab's ability to produce that prescription. And it's not just to their skill set, but also the software that they're using. Are they able to produce the shapes that the podiatrist required? Or are they washing it out because the software isn't powerful enough to produce those corrections? So anybody can still buy an insole and adjust it themselves but it's, it's the diagnosis that's the important part where the podiatrist comes in. Like you said, Martin, you know, there's still going to be a need for the podiatrist. Uh, at the end of the day, it is a shape that we're sticking under a foot. How we produce that shape, the additions will come from, and somebody also mentioned in materials, the future has different materials. So going into variable stiffness, and it's something that we're doing at the moment. And um, if I may actually um, say, Chris, if you're watching, Chris Bishop is doing a study right now where, you know, we're testing variable stiffness in a shell, and that's one of the studies I mentioned very early on. Um, that's the future. It's to be able to actually manipulate the stiffness and allow the orthotic to flex in certain parts and then rebound, return the energy to the foot. And we're talking about elite athletes here, runners, and to be able to actually increase performance. And you never know. One day we might actually see a sub-two-hour marathon where orthotics of that type are used because it returns the energy to the foot and and. and creates less fatigue and they can perform better. So that's on the cards as well. Okay, I think, I think, yeah, thanks. And I think on that note, we'll, we'll wind up, but just before we finish, I obviously want to thank Martin and Arthur for, for joining us. So look, I just get a little plug in for footwork, which is Arthur's lab um, and his Facebook Page. Is that you? Is that is that all, is that all in the middle? That's Arthur. <laughs> that George, that yeah. is a bad photo, Craig. <laughs> and oh, I'll, be, I'll be honest, you don't look good there. George looks Arthur's ridiculous. Foot, Arthur's, um, footwork page. He's, he's annoyingly good. He's annoyingly but good looking. I, I did notice in the comments that that someone did say that, that that Martin did look quite attractive, but there's no photo on Martin's website um, and <laughs> Martin's uh, <laughs> Facebook page. So. Um, I just want to, you know, thank, thanks to both of you for joining us and, and, and sharing your uh, pearls of wisdom uh, with us this morning. We, we, as always, we've, the, the hour has gone. We, we wanted to keep these to 40 minutes when we started, but we, we, just, we, we could keep going for quite, quite a lot longer. We've got a lot of questions we haven't got to, so maybe we'll try and get to those in the comments afterwards. So um, thanks, everybody, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent concept, gents. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Appreciate Cheers. it. All right.